I know that I've shared the illustration. I didn't know that I didn't have my mic on. I've shared this illustration before, and I was going to last week, but um, it seems more appropriate this week that it goes along with what we concluded with our parable. Michael Iaconelli in his book, Messy Spirituality, says this. He says, according to his critics, Jesus did God all wrong. He went to the wrong places, he said the wrong things, and worst of all, he let just anyone into the kingdom. Jesus scandalized an intimidating elitist country club religion by opening membership in the spiritual life to those who have been denied it. What made people furious was Jesus' irresponsible habit of throwing open the doors of his love to the whosoevers, the just anyones, and the not a chancers like you and me. Nothing makes people in the church more angry than grace. It's ironic. We stumbled into a party we weren't invited to and find the uninvited standing at the door making sure no other uninvited's get in. Then a strange phenomenon occurs. As soon as we're included in the party because of Jesus' irresponsible love, we decide to make grace more responsible by becoming self-appointed kingdom monitors, guarding the kingdom of God, keeping the riffraff out. Riffraff. I understand that that's exactly who the kingdom of God was for. John tells the story of a man like us, an outsider, a blind outsider. The blind man bumped into Jesus and found his blindness ruined by him and became a scandal to the religious leaders of his day. His miraculous encounter with Jesus is a model for all of us who are trying to live spiritual lives. In chapter nine, we meet this man who was born blind from birth, sitting in his familiar place, begging. The disciples bring up some theological question about whether his blindness was caused by his own sin or by his parents' sin. They're not concerned at all about the blind man. What they're concerned about is the theology of blindness. The disciples attempt to have a theological discussion and Jesus cuts it short. He makes it very clear that what matters is glorifying God, helping blind men and women see. The disciples are worried about theories and doctrines. Jesus is worried about the blind man. In effect, Jesus says, your philosophizing about the cause of blindness is interesting, but wait till you see this. Talking about God's power is one thing, but look what happens when you're in the presence of his power. A little mud, a little water, and the blind man is no longer blind. Now the blind man's troubles really begin. Sometimes when blind people get unblind, their closest friends are not happy. Meeting Jesus does not always result in our troubles ending. Sometimes our troubles just begin. Jesus warns us, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Begin a relationship with Jesus, and we're going to get in the same kind of trouble Jesus did. When the man who was formerly blind returns to his neighborhood, his, his neighbors refuse to believe he can see. Afraid of mystery, unable to fathom the possibility of a miracle, the neighbors turn their backs on their friend and drag him to those who should have known something about mystery and miracle and spirituality. The religious leaders, the condemners, they sabotage. The sabotage of the blind man now begins. 
How should you and I respond to intimidation, this kind of intimidation? How can we survive when those around us criticize our spirituality, or worse, reject us because we simply weren't religious enough? Some conclusions from last week about our our three parables, our lost coin and our lost sheep and our lost son. You know, first conclusion is the shepherd, the woman, and the father were all labeled with a reputation. They were all prodigal. They were wastefully extravagant. They throw parties to celebrate lost things, just things, and an animal, and a son who does not deserve the love of the father anymore. What a waste. It doesn't matter to the one who loves, uh, it doesn't matter to one who loves what or who it is though. The motives, the actions, or inherent worth of the thing, the, the animal, or the son, the inherent worth comes from those that found them. Their inherent worth isn't, isn't uh, uh, who they are or what they've done. Their inherent worth comes from the shepherd, from the woman, and from the father, who all three, when they are found, when they find him, throw a party to celebrate that they're found. Love doesn't seem to care about reputation amongst the responsible folk. The the, the last one that really catches me is that resentment and anger run deep, deep enough for that older brother that he would rather completely disassociate himself from his little brother and his father. His language says, I don't wanna be around you anymore if you're gonna treat him this way. This son of yours, you never gave me. Somebody who's willing to turn their back on God because he's generous. We've been in this place before. The outside voice in the parable already gave us one where the vineyard owner said to those responsible ones who were expecting more because they worked 12 hours. Am I not allowed to do with what is mine, what I want? And I choose to give these guys the same as I gave you. Or is your eye envious because I am generous? For the older brother, that was certainly the case. He would rather not be around him at all anymore. So before that, before what we studied last week, Luke actually told another parable, I believe, that was supposed to prepare us to hear about this prodigal love. Because again, it it seemed uh, strange. Strange that there's a coin and an animal and a son all compared, and the only thing that they had in common was that they were lost. But the beautiful thing is, the other thing that they had in common was that it didn't matter The, the sheep doesn't know how to repent, a coin certainly can't repent, And the younger son probably never ever repented. That was the whole point of putting all three of those together. So Luke tells a parable in chapter 14, I believe, in order to prepare us for that kind of love. Because we're we're not in tune to it. We don't uh, don't have the outside voice naturally. We We don't understand something like that. We're not ready for something like that. Let me ask you, 
The first time that you ever heard or actually began to believe that God loved you just as you are before you even took a step towards him, were you ready to hear that? None of us are, are we? That's why it's called being born again. We've never experienced anything like it before. To be born again means to experience something we absolutely never, ever have experienced. New birth, new life, no death. So I think that looking at that parable, the one that was supposed to prepare us for the prodigal love of the father, might even have more impact now to go back and look at it, knowing that this is what it was supposed to prepare us for. So it begins with a setup to the parable with language that only Luke records. I shared with you before that Luke has a particular way of wording things. He has, there's something about Luke and the way that he reports Jesus' outside voice. At the very least, I'll say this, he has an edge that the other gospel writers do not have. There's, there's an edge to him, and I'm not sure where it comes from. I'm not sure where it comes from. You have to remember that Luke is the one gospel writer that is not Jewish. He's not a Hebrew. He's Greek, which means he is completely, uh, I guess, uh, in, 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 engulfed in Western thought. And I shared with you before, Hebrew thought. We're we'll talk a little bit about that. I'm not sure uh, why Luke uh, words it the way he is, but I think that this has something to do with it. He had to have been one of the very first converts, one of the very first Gentile converts. He spent a lot of time with Paul. And when it came time to tell his story, he is telling it to a fellow Greek, another one who is schooled in Western thought, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. So there's something about him. He has an edge, if you will. And it's apparent in, this, in the first lines of this parable. It says that loud, large crowds were traveling with him, and he turns to them, and he says, he, just out of nowhere, he, sets it, he just sets it up. He, he, according to Luke, Jesus just turns to these crowds, and this is the first thing uh, that he says to them. He, he, it's going to be one of those days. Whoever comes to me and does not, what? Hate father and mother wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. See, he turns to the crowds. The crowds are following him, which, by the way, is the definition of being a disciple. Disciple means follower. The crowds think that if they're walking around and following him to listen to him speak, that they're actually following him. He turns and tells him what it takes to actually follow him. In order to follow him, you have to what? You have to hate. Now, I wish I could tell you, I wish I could tell you that there were uh, three or four words for hate, and this one is a hate that really isn't hate. It actually kind of means like, okay, but, but I'm sorry, no. This is the Greek word for hate, misueo. It comes from misos, the word hatred. You recognize the word misogyny, hatred of women? This is the word. It's used 50 times in the New Testament. And it's placed in the lives of people who are enemies who literally hate one another. 
I wish I could tell you. And is there anybody that knows the language better than Luke? It's his native language, Greek is. <laughs> By the way, the best Greek in all the New Testament, Luke and Hebrews, the best Greek, grammatically and everything else. It's the finest. So what do you do with that? In order to be a disciple, I have to hate my family. Okay? Well, we must know that something else is going on, right? Here's your first clue. Here's your first clue. When you come across something, uh, how, how many here know Jesus? How many here know Jesus pretty good? It's not a trick question. Do you know Jesus pretty good? Okay. Rule number one, if Jesus says something that makes you uncomfortable with what he said, that might be your first clue something else is going on here. I think we're absolutely allowed to say something like, you know what, that doesn't sound like Jesus. It doesn't, does it? Did Jesus ever, according, you know, uh, how well you know him, did he ever in your relationship tell you that you needed to hate somebody? There's your first clue that something else might be going on here. See, I think it's really important that we find that too because if we don't, it could be very dangerous. We might conclude that if he commands us to hate certain people, well, that would mean that he hates them too. And that's, our, that's now our permission to go around and tell people that God hates them for some reason. By the way, in this particular case, I have to tell my family that God hates them. Why? Because you're my family. You see my confused look? I am confused. So first, it's a direct contradiction to so many other foundational scripture that is absolutely clear and actually sound more lack of a better term, natural, coming out of Jesus' mouth, right? Start with father and mother. Can you hate your father and mother and still honor them? I just went, you know, let's start with, we might as well start with the commandments, right? How about this? All who hate a brother or sister are what? Murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. Those, and then a and then, uh, chapter later it says, those who say I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are what? Are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love a God that they've not seen. So if you think that, that, that Luke is, is, is saying that Jesus said that, it, that we can hate, then take into this, this, to put them literal, to make that a literal command in Luke 14 in, our, uh, in the beginning of our parable, put them directly with this, if you believe it's a literal command to hate your family, okay? And this is what you would come up with. In order to follow Jesus, you'd say, to be his disciple means I have to become a murderer and a liar. if I'm gonna take it literally. See, the context of this is not complicated when you have so much other scripture lined up in opposing actual hatred for people. So what can we do with this? 
There's a way that ancient ears heard this that we don't hear today. The way that ancient, hear, ancient hearers heard the word hate and hatred that we don't. And all I can do is, 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 is know that, that they've, they valued words that had to do with such emotions as love and hate. They valued them in comparison to something else. If there was something else that, was, that could be, uh, I guess, placed on an even level, then you compared the word. In other words, they compare the word hatred to a, a value of what hatred may mean at any given time. It's comparable to the principle I've, I've shared with you before, the Hebrew principle of kalva homer. Jesus and the rabbis used Kalva Humer extensively when they wanted to come up with illustrations of how God feels about them. I'm gonna talk more about this next week because it, it translates a little bit more into the parable we're gonna look at next week. But let's just say simply for right now, Kalva Humer is the argument from the least to the greatest. Start with the least and you can work to the greatest. And for Luke, Jesus has already put this in place. If you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, then you have to read chapter 12 before you get to chapter 14 when Jesus tells you you have to hate your family in order to follow him. And the context is this. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. The argument from the least, if he'll do this for grass and flowers, how much more will he do for you? And we know that he said the same thing in Matthew about sparrows, right? Sparrows, you find sparrows anywhere in the world, right? In the marketplace, according to Jesus, in the marketplace, in his day, you could buy a sparrow, one sparrow for half a penny. You get two sparrows for a penny. They're everywhere. They're the most common birds. And he says, yet not one of them falls away from your father's attention. The, the argument from the least, the sparrow, to now where? But you are worth more than many, many sparrows. So if he'll do it for one, why won't he do it for you? Jesus adds here, though, though, what's it require in order to be able to understand the argument from the least to the greatest, the, comp, the, the comparison from the, the greatest to the least? What do you need, O oh, ye of little one? Faith. Calva Homer is a great principle, and like I said, we'll talk more about it next week, but it's, it requires something in order to get it. What is it? Faith. You gotta believe what Jesus, what Arlene said Jesus already told us. So you're not gonna believe that he cares for you more than he cares for sparrows or lilies or grass if you don't believe that he loves you. Jesus said, that's what I came to show you. I came to show you the Father's love. The Father himself loves you. 
These illustrations, these comparisons go nowhere without faith, without belief. So, hate then is only used when compared to something else. And what else do you compare it to? Love. Now, I'm not saying that hate is the opposite of love. Hate is far from the opposite of love. It's not the opposite of love. You know what the opposite of love is? Apathy, feeling nothing. In order to hate, you have to love something in comparison. I know there's some of you that hate sports illustrations. Hate, literally hate, I understand, okay? I understand. But when you have two rivalries, there's a, uh, the greatest baseball rivalry, rivalry ever in all of baseball, okay, was the Dodgers and the Giants when they were both in New York. The Dodgers used to be, did you all know that the Dodgers used to play in Brooklyn and the Giants used to play in New York, right? It's not, 1957 is when they moved to California. But before there, for 50 years, they were back and forth, back and forth. They hated each other. They literally hated each other. And I always remember this one telling about the 51 uh, playoffs in which uh, the Giants uh, tied the Dodgers on the last day and then ended up going to the World Series after being so far out and everything else. And this, this one commentator, he said, I was a little boy then. He was about 10 years old when that happened. And he said, I was a rabid Giant fan in those days. I hated the Dodgers. And then he says this, with a hate that only love can understand. See, what he's saying was, was that he couldn't love the Giants without hating the Dodgers and vice versa. The opposite of love is apathy, feeling nothing for somebody. Hate comes from somewhere. This kind of hatred for family, he's saying, it comes from love. It, and it loses its meaning because we think that Jesus means our definition of hate. And our definition of hate is pretty much what the world defines hate as. So let me ask you this, are we to love as the world loves? How does the world love? Is the world capable of love? Sure. The world loves us up to a point, right? In other words, the world loves conditionally, which according to Jesus, if it's conditional, then it really isn't love. So I guess you got me on that. But the world loves conditionally. The world will love you as long as you're doing something for the world. Fail, though, betray, though, and what does the world do? That's it. So are we to love the way the world loves? Absolutely not. Are we commanded to love as the world loves? Absolutely not. Are we to love as the world loves, or are we to love as we have been loved? What happens with our relationship with God when we fail, when we stumble, when we sin, when we act, actually actively betray him. Remember our shepherd, the woman, and the father? That's what we're to remember. So we can't use, if, we're, if we can't use the world's definition of love, then we cannot use the world's definition of hate either. 
And I have to trust that Jesus is using his definition of hate. It's only hate as comparison to love. All Jesus is asking for is that I'm asking you to love everybody, just love me more. And if you love me more, then it's almost as if you hate everybody else. And then Jesus said, but here's how you hate everybody with my definition of hate. You actually end up loving everybody. Right? Because there's only one love to compare it to. It's hate as only comparison to his love. There's nothing in comparison to his love. So what he's saying is, it might as well be hate. Because nobody loves you like I do, he said. So we've played with this passage and, and, and we've said, okay, well, he must be speaking metaphorically. And once, once we start understanding, once we, once we head down that road, when we start to head down that road with love and hate and the world's definition and everything else, we've lost the thread completely. We've lost the ability to follow Christ as we've been called to follow him. Doesn't mean that he didn't speak in metaphor occasionally, but when it came to love, he never spoke in metaphor. Because if, 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 if he spoke in metaphor about love, then that would mean that he's a metaphor. Did he come to be a metaphor for us? No. Because I remember a Sabbath school discussion saying, okay, I understand what he's saying because there are friends and family who may actively or even passive aggressively try to keep you away from following Jesus. There are people who have testimonies that when they began to follow Jesus, their families ostracized them or got rid of them. So he's saying to those people, he's saying, then you're allowed to hate them. But you have to remember, it didn't start that way, did it? When he turned, he looked at the entire crowd and told them that. You think that everybody in that crowd would have family who would actively uh, pursue or, or keep somebody from following Jesus in that whole crowd? He didn't just call those out who had families who would ostracize them. Like I said, I remember a, 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 an actual Sabbath school discussion saying that if your family's doing that to you, then yes, you're allowed to hate them. Why? Well, if somebody is not allowing me to follow Jesus, then they're not my friend. They're my enemy. So I get to take Luke 14, 26, literally. If they're enemies, then I get to hate them. If they're my enemies, I get to hate them. Hmm. You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Oh, man, Lord, make up your mind. Do I get to hate them or not? He's made up his mind when it comes to his enemies, hasn't he? See, this is about discipleship. 
Luke's language that he, and, and I'm not saying that Luke is the one using the language. Luke is the one who's decided to report it. These are the words that meant the most to Luke. This is what he wants to get across. This is what he believes is important, that every disciple should know. This is about discipleship. Loving him more because we have faith that he loved us first. If you have faith that he has loved you first, then he can use words like hate when it comes to other people. Why? Because in the midst, in the environment, in the envelope of his unending love, then everything is neutralized. Evil, hate, it all has a context now. And the context is that he loved us first. See, Luke is telling us, you know what guys? If you got into this whole discipleship thing, if you got into this whole church thing, thinking that having different morals and lifestyles that we strive for and doctrines that we uphold gives us permission to hate those or look with disdain upon those who don't, then we simply do not understand what it means to be a a disciple. He has to use the language that he's using here. And how do I know that that's what he means? It's because of how he puts it next. The very next thing he says is whoever does not what? Carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The cross. I don't know about you, but now you know that Jesus isn't messing around, is he? Luke's not messing around. If you think there's anybody on this planet that you can hate, bring up the cross. If you think there's anybody on this planet that God hates or that Jesus hates, bring up the cross. If you're looking for one argument against any sort of hatred that the Father has for any of his created creatures, bring up the cross. So what does he mean here? Are we literally to carry a cross? There's a little village in the Philippines every year on Good Friday, every year on Good Friday, there's a handful of men who volunteer to literally be crucified. They literally are nailed to crosses and hang there. They do it for a spiritual cleansing and for an epiphany is what they do it for, which just kind of cracks me up. Okay, because they do it for something they want to gain, which completely misrepresents the idea and the theology of the cross. Did Jesus do it for his own self-aggrandizement? He did it for who? Did it for others. If they could at least say, you know, I'm doing it for my fellow villagers. Maybe God will give us rain. Maybe God will give us crops. That, that's why I'm doing it. I'd, 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 I'm not saying I admire it, but I'd, I'd, I'd look at it with a little less disdain than say I'm doing it for my own spiritual epiphany, and that's it right there. It's not literally to do that. When I lived up in the Redwoods, there was a, uh, a man who felt that 
the best way that he would be able to share the good news with people. Uh, because he thought that the cross was the absolute gospel, that it was the good news, that Jesus died for your sins. How many believe that's the gospel? How many believe that's the good news? I think that it is. But he felt that the best way to do that was he constructed his own cross. He took a, I don't even know where he found it, but you know those, do do you remember your skates that you had to put on your shoes with a key? He had one of those skates and he put it on the end of the cross and he would roll it down the road. And he had a little sign that hung on the cross that just said, ask me. Well, at least it would start a conversation. You got a guy dressed like Jesus, rolling a cross down Highway 101, you might ask him what's going on, right? But that isn't what Jesus is saying here, is it? Like I said, he's not messing around anymore. Who did Jesus go to the cross for? Only those who loved him? But God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we've been justified by his blood, we'll be saved through him from the wrath of God. You heard the Calva Homer in there, didn't you? If he died for you while you were his enemy, so much more now you'll be able to live with his life. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely. How much more, having been reconciled, will you now be saved by his life? See, if he loved me first while I was still his enemy, then am I really allowed then to hate my parents, my wife, my children, and my friends? simply because they don't believe the way I believe? You can't hate, world hate, if you're carrying a cross. The cross is about sacrifice. And the one thing that he's asking us to do is that we have to sacrifice our definition of hate and our definition of love, for that matter. We sacrificed it when we signed up to be a disciple. We sacrificed the right to be right. Sometimes the biggest sacrifice to make is the right to be right, to be morally superior, to look down on somebody else. You ever known anybody who thought that humility was a spiritual gift and they wear it like a badge? Have you ever met anybody who is so proud to be humble? It's the cost of being a disciple. And this is what we were supposed to hear before you get to the prodigal father. Which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Consider the cost before you decide to be a disciple. That's what he's telling this crowd. You're following me around now because you maybe kind of like the sound of my voice, but let me tell you what this is gonna cost. I'm gonna ask for your love, and I'm gonna ask for it all the way. 
What's he say going to happen to us if we didn't estimate the cost and we get into it and we can't finish? What's he going to say when we get in the middle and we decide, oh man, I can't do this. I, there it's, I, I've got a huge list of enemies that I simply cannot love. And I've got a huge list of people who simply do not belong in this church with me. This son of yours. See, if we don't count that cost, if we don't understand that going in, then what happens to us in the middle? We end up walking away from the very kingdom we thought we were protecting. All because we don't like the looks of someone else who's in it. By the way, who ridicules you for it? Everybody who knows. The very people you thought you were witnessing to by being morally superior to them. They all get to what now? So let me ask you, are we Christ's church? Not a trick question. Are we Christ's church? Okay, good. Wow, you guys had me worried for a minute. Are we a member of the church of the lamb that was slain? Okay, there we go, that's better. Do we claim to be his people? Do we claim to love as he loves? Do we claim to have his spirit, not just dwelling among us, but actually dwelling within us? Then how come this, he has to tell us, look, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come to you and eat with you and you with me. You wanna know what's ridiculous? A church that claims to be a church of Jesus, that claims to welcome everybody that Jesus died for, yet we've locked him out. You wanna know what's ridiculous? That's ridiculous. Laodicea is ridiculous. Somebody just walking by says, hey, I noticed, I noticed your sign. You're a church that worships, adores, and follows Jesus. I've seen, I've seen some things on YouTube. Um, but, but wait a minute, hold on a second. Who's that guy that's standing on the door locked out and knocking? What do we have to say? Oh, that's Jesus. If that's what they're ridiculing us for, then we deserve to be ridiculed, don't we? See, and the king answers. He says, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. When we tell somebody they don't belong, we literally are locking Christ out of the church. That's the definition of Laodicea. Laodicea makes Jesus ill. It makes him sick because of her inauthenticity. She claims to be a church of Christ, but she's locked Christ outside the door with all the other people she's keeping out. Laodicea has distinguished herself on who she keeps out versus who she lets in. 
The church described in our parables from last week seemed to have been based on one thing, as we pointed out, the love that the shepherd, the woman, and the father have for their lost. They throw a party for them. The ones throwing the party, they've counted the cost. When they realize what God has done for them, when the, when the son realized what the father has done for him, he's counted the cost now. Where is he? He's in the party, celebrating. With all the tax collectors and the sinners who were listening to this parable, they're in the party. They've counted the cost. They are all in. And even the father, even then, after he gets them all in, he's then even willing to go out to the older brother who now hates him to be able to reach him. The lost are outside the party, wringing their hands because they're people inside the party who do not belong. Older brothers are good with that, by the way. If the father's going to associate and lavish upon them after what they've done to him or become, then I am perfectly happy staying outside. I'm perfectly happy being lost. Except they don't believe they're lost, do they? They'll go find another church, another church of I hate you that makes sure that there'll be other people out. And I'm sorry to put this, but there's always going to be a church that is going to open their doors to people who only deserve it. There's always going to be a church that identifies themselves by who they lock out versus who they let in. But those who've counted the cost, they're sold out. And Luke says that Jesus says it's obvious. It's obvious that they're sold out. It's as obvious as a king who's outnumbered two to one who doesn't want to go to war with somebody if he's outnumbered two to one. It's pretty obvious if you're outnumbered two to one, you probably shouldn't go to war, right? At least discuss it. At least sit down and talk about it. And when you decide that it's ludicrous to go to war when you're outnumbered two to one, then go do something. And what is it? Negotiate a peace before it becomes war. Jesus is saying that it, uh, the, to be sold out to the love of Christ is as obvious as that. To a sinner who knows that they're a sinner, that's how obvious it should be what the cost is. They've counted the cost. They can build the tower. They are all in. Then he pours it on. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you don't what? If you don't give up all your possessions. I told you Luke had an edge, didn't I? How many just cringed just now? I did every time I read it. Every time I read it, I just cringe. And when, you, when you're talking about uh, the rich young ruler, uh, and he says you need to give everything away, I just cringed. And every time that I preach, every time that I do this, somebody will come up to me and say, so, so you're saying I have to give up all my possessions? How am I relating to God now, if that's the way that I understand this? That he just, he just spent all of these parables trying to tell me what it is that makes me belong, and now I've reduced it then to something I need to perform for him. 
and we forget that the Father himself loves you. See, he knows. And we'll start saying, well, no, I think he's speaking metaphorically. See, but those who are sold out, they hear something like that, they don't cringe at all. Right? You think I would put possessions over my relationship to God? They don't cringe at all, do they? And they probably were never asked to give up their possessions. Those who are sold out in the party, they're not worried that there is something that they can do that would anger the father so much that he would kick them out of the party. Now, if there's a possession that you and I are holding on to that supersedes our relationship to Jesus, then we need to have a talk with somebody, don't we? If we're gonna be all in on love and no matter who and what others, that's it, that's the standard right there. Possessions, family, anything more, quote, important. Because then he'll finish it this way. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone who hears, has an ear, what? Listen. He just said it isn't for everybody, didn't he? He just said, I understand what I've told you. It isn't for everybody. But if it's for you, he says, Come and see. Let's walk. Let's talk. Let's become the children that I know you can be. See, the carrying of the cross, the counting the cost of a tower, was built to prepare our ears for that prodigal shepherd and woman and father. It was prepared for us. That our ears were supposed to be prepared to hear the father say this, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost, and he's been found. If we can't celebrate somebody who's found Christ because we think that he simply doesn't belong because of who he is, then we haven't had our ears prepared. We're still trying to build a tower that we do not have the means to finish. When I... When I got back from seminary, I had this, this one uh, particular uh, member who saw it as their mission to make sure that I was walking on the straight and narrow. They were constantly, constantly making sure that I was on the straight and narrow. And I had preached probably my 10th or 12th sermon that sounded just like this, okay? And, and uh, they were heard to say, you know what? There's something wrong with the seminary because all I hear from pastors coming out of the seminary these days is love, love, love. They don't realize that coming from them is probably the greatest compliment I've ever had in 40 years of ministry. Because I remember them and people like them 
One of the things that they didn't care for was my willingness to reach outside the Adventist circle for resources on all kinds of things church. I happen to believe that I don't think Adventists have the corner on how to do church. I think there's some pretty good ideas out there. And I used to reach outside. They saw that as a compromise. They saw that as creeping compromise. You can't find any other information outside of our church and fought me tooth and nail when they knew that I got an idea from somewhere else. Or if I quote it. I quote from books that I read. Uh, I quote from all these things. And every time that I had a quote from somebody who was not Adventist, and you guys know how much I quote Philip Yancey and, and Michael Iaconelli and Brendan Manning. and So I heard it every week. But you know what? Those same people seem to have no problem to to embrace today's church that is outside of Adventism. Why? Because they see common enemies to hate. They'll embrace a church outside in order to uh, have the same enemy that they do. In other words, the church, the mainstream church in America has labeled particular enemies who do not belong in Christian circles. And those people who used to scream at me that I couldn't use anything outside, they completely embrace because they have the same enemies that they do now. I pointed that out in in, in prayer meeting. I was hoping after 40 years in the church, and, and I'm sure that you were hoping too, that the number of people that we marginalize would grow smaller that there would be fewer and fewer people who we would deem as not qualified to be in the kingdom. But it gets bigger. We seem to embrace others who are outside the church as long as they hate the same people we do. And I'm sorry, but that is a a world adage that is absolutely true when it comes to hate. The world's definition of hate says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And Jesus said, you know what? You're not all in. And he realizes how difficult that is. Did you ever understand, understand it to mean this? That, that Why is the path so narrow? It's because there's so very few people who are willing to love as they have been loved. I'll leave you with this. Michael Cheshire. Pastor Journey Church in Colorado. He wanted to talk to folks who, in his words, had hung up the towel of church attendance and moved on. He placed an ad on Craigslist and literally boatloads answered. They were more than willing to have coffee and share their hearts. Most of them were in their late 20s and early 30s. There were some surprising things. Most missed attending a local church though they didn't miss it enough to go back. Many did, though, felt a longing to try again. But overall, they were not really bitter or angry at church, but just admitted to being happier now that they were no longer in one. And they felt, absolute, they felt actually more authentic about their faith in Christ. And listen to this. 
most shocking of all was that they seem to share their faith more now that they weren't in a church anymore. Their explanation was, was that they weren't trying to close the salvation deal. Their conversations just flowed. Their church was getting in the way of their love. At the end, he always asked his new de-churched friends what it would take to plug them into a church again. Pastor said that the answer centered around two things. Listen to this. They would need to see the church actively do real things in and for their community without being pushy about attending church. They were looking for ministries that had no strings attached. You do good simply because we're good and not because we're trying to get somebody in the doors of the church. Mother White said something about our ministries being, uh, what was it? Um, shoot, it just, first, last word is benevolence. Disinterested benevolence. And number two, they would need to be convinced that the Christians in the church, and this gets me, I'd need to be convinced that the Christians in the church were just nice. <laughs> nice. That was the very word they used, he said. Nice. He said, it's a funny word when you think about it because nice is really only used by children. You're not nice. Play nice. Mom and dad said you had to be nice. Be nice. He concluded by saying that Christians push and force fellow Christians to live exactly like them, parent like them, do marriage like them, eat like them, exercise like them, talk like them, vote like them, despise the same people as them. And he concludes with a quote from Anne Lamott. He says, I can't help but think of Anne Lamott's great quote. It says, you can tell you've created God in your own image when it turns out he hates all the same people you hate. The incongruence between a Bible-believing people and niceness. A Bible-believing people who believe they can hate and love. But we worship the living word. On that day, you'll ask in my name. I do not say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf. You don't have to send me in to... Make sure that dad's not mad at you, he said. For the father himself loves you. Because you've loved me and have believed that I've came from God. We've count the cost. How many are all in on love? Keep your hand up because there's almost going to be an immediate test of that. Probably when you leave the building. Maybe before you get out of the building. But I'm glad that we're all in. Thank you for hanging in there with me.